0: the immorality that is spreading across America is because we have a low view of human life. And are we surprised for when a nation suppresses the truth of God, God has revealed himself, his divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen through the creation around us. And when men suppress that truth, God gives them over to sensuality.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. For the last week, we have been in a series on morality and moral excellence. We began our series by studying the life of King David, where we looked at how to avoid moral failure. In part two of our series, we examined how to find moral forgiveness as we looked at the life of the woman caught in adultery. Today's sermon is entitled, Reaping Moral Compromise. Pastor Carl reminds us that we are never to compromise the Word of God or His standards. Furthermore, whatever a man sows, he shall reap. Please join us in the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verse one, as we begin.
0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 38. If you are with us for the first time, we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the book of James, and between books of the Bible, sometimes I do some special series that God has put on my heart, and we are doing a series on morality in a day where there seems to be little in America, where more Americans, like the people in Jeremiah's day, have lost their ability to blush. And so, we began this series by studying the life of King David, where we looked at avoiding moral failure as we examined his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And then, if you were here last time, we looked at finding moral forgiveness as we looked at the life of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And you can see today's message is reaping moral compromise. Because God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. Now, sadly, in America… We have reached a crisis, where the very fabric of our nation is coming, coming unraveled. And of course, the church, which is supposed to build families, sadly, many times, is tearing down families. And when I say church, I recognize there's a difference between the true church and the apostate church. Between the living body of Christ, those who are truly possessing the Lord Jesus as their Savior, and those who only profess him, who have never been regenerated and born from above. There's the dead church, there's the live church. And so on the one hand, we have liberal Protestants who are endorsing the LGBTQ plus lifestyle because many of them are immoral heterosexuals and immoral heterosexuality always leads to an endorsement of homosexuality. The Bible teaches that in a number of places that we'll be looking at in the weeks ahead. Apart from that, we have a worldwide problem of huge proportions of pedophile and homosexual priests in the Roman Catholic Church, and now evangelicals who are squishy on some critical issues because they're afraid they might turn some folks off and they don't want to lose membership. So we might expect compromise from the apostate church, but it should never happen in the evangelical church. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt has become saltless, how will it be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to fill potholes that men may run over it. And so the history of the church, the history of humanity, has demonstrated that when people have a low view of sex, they have a low view of humanity. And the infanticide, the abortion, the euthanasia, the immorality that is spreading across America is because we have a low view of human life. And are we surprised for when a nation suppresses the truth of God, God has revealed himself, his divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature is clearly seen through the creation around us. And when men suppress that truth, God gives them over to sensuality. And if they continue to suppress that truth, because heterosexual immorality always opens the door to homosexuality, God gives them over to homosexuality. And if they continue to suppress the truth, God gives them over to a depraved mind. And that is not only where our nation is, it's where our world is headed. And so when man becomes his own master and maker, he becomes his own God, he decides what's true, what's right, what's wrong. And really the problem is, goes back to Darwin. Darwin who taught that we evolved from animals. He heard the gospel, Charles Darwin. He pointedly rejected the gospel. And when men reject truth, they believe a lie. And that's what Darwin did. And so our children are being taught that we evolved from animals. So are we surprised that they would live like animals? And ultimately it comes down to an issue of authority is this book true or not is this the infallible inerrant word of God or not look it's the only book on the face of the planet that God inspired there are no prophecies in the Quran and thank God that most Muslims in the world do not believe their book take it at face value or the violence would be even worse The Muslims that we see beheading believers, threatening the church this morning in Afghanistan, are people who take the Quran at face value that teaches them to slaughter Jews and Christians. A false God leads to wicked behavior. And so Jesus said, You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He said, men don't take their lamp and put it under a basket. They put it up high on a lampstand so that everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. And so we have more and more in the evangelical church who are again, afraid to stand up against the culture. And they say, well, it's not that important whether or not Adam and Eve were real people. It's not that important whether or not there was a literal actual flood that encompassed the whole world. It's not that important if you wanna believe theistic evolution, as some so-called Christian apologists tell us. It's okay, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. Because these so-called pastors and apologists who reject biblical history ended up opening the door to sexual immorality. They jettison biblical morality whenever you jettison biblical history. And so there are books being used in evangelical churches all across America this morning, sold in bookstores that deny these basic truths. And so this morning is, we look at our text of scripture. It's a sobering passage. But it's a helpful passage because God has called us to be different. We are to be a different kind of people. And it's our distinctiveness from the world that gives us authority and an open door potentially with the world. Now, I'm not going to read our whole passage this morning. But I want to start by reading a portion of it so you know where we are headed this morning. Genesis chapter 38. Follow along beginning now in verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hera, the Adullamite. It was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah, or Shelah, if you prefer, had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Enam? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of that place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, otherwise we will become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I inasmuch. I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Now, let me set the context. Most of you know that Genesis divides into two parts, Genesis 1 through 11, where it deals with the creation, the fall, the flood, and the table of nations, and then chapters 12 through 50 that highlight four key people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. When you come to chapters 37 through 50, it's a biography on the life of Joseph. It comprises 25% of the book of Genesis. And yet there's this brief interlude in Joseph's biography here in the 38th chapter, and the careful reader would naturally ask, why would God interrupt this biography on Joseph's life to bring up this event that apparently seems to have nothing to do with Joseph? Well, critics who deny Mosaic authorship say a later writer just inserted this. Well, that's not true. That's arrogance. That's unnecessary. It's a denial of the infallibility of Scripture that the Spirit of God put the Bible together, and God in His sovereignty, as He says in the Bible, protected His Word. I think uh, there's a couple of reasons why this is included. First, God wants to teach us something about character. You see, for a person to have an impact in a corrupt society, he or she must be a person of character. And it is your convictions that determine your decisions. And when you make enough right decisions, it will shape your character. And it's your character that allows you, if it's godly character, to have an influence in a dark culture. And so chapters 38 and 39, you find two brothers put side by side, two men raised in the same family with different convictions. In chapter 38, we find Judah with his grim and sordid life. and In chapter 39, we find Joseph with a godly life, and they both end up bearing very different kind of fruit. So at first glance, while this seems like it's an interruption in the life of Joseph, it's not at all. It's, among other things, giving us a reason why Joseph is sold into slavery that he's already introduced us to, why God is ultimately going to bring all the Jewish people down to Egypt for 400 years, just as he prophesied to Abraham, because they are living in a godless culture, and you can begin to see already how the family is being shaped by the Canaanites around them. So God is gonna bring the nation down into Egypt to preserve the nation, to protect the nation, to shape the nation for the purposes that he has. So this is no interruption at all. And secondly, it is, as we'll see this morning, to teach us something about the grace of God, that in the midst of failure, God can intervene with his grace. Now, with that backdrop, let's plunge into the details. There's an outline and your bulletin. If you're new, if you're online, you can print it out. I want you to notice first Judah and his sons. Judah and his sons. The chapter opens... Moses beginning to unfold for us, Moses, of course, the author of the Torah, the first five books, Pentateuchos, uh, the five books of the law, the Pentateuch, and it begins by underscoring uh, Judah's wayward behavior, Judah's wayward behavior. Look, if you will, now at verse 1 in your Bibles, Genesis 38, verse 1. And it came about at that time, Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. So he heads to this city called Adullam. Here's a map to give you some perspective where we are. You'll see the Dead Sea on the right side, and just north of and west of the Dead Sea is a little town called Bethlehem. The Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and that's where Jesus was born. And if you could see it on the map and you could go six miles further north, you would see the city of Jerusalem. Well, southwest of Jerusalem and west of Bethlehem is this little place called Adullam. Now, he goes there, and he meets this Adullamite by the name of Hera. And Hera will turn up three times in this chapter, and he'll become a critical influence in the life of Judah towards a wicked, evil kind of lifestyle. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't think that somehow godless people, whether it's in behavior or doctrine, the latter in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, will not influence you. Bad company always corrupts good morals. And so Hira, who starts out as an acquaintance, becomes an associate, and in the end, he becomes an accomplice in Judah's sin. And let me just say parenthetically, That is usually the way it is when a person's life is not right with the Lord. If your life is not right with the Lord, if God is not filling and satisfying your heart, you're gonna find that satisfaction elsewhere. Put out in the margin, would you? Jeremiah 2 and verse five, Jeremiah 2, five. There the prophet says, they went far from me, God is speaking, they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. That's what happens. You walk after emptiness because that's all the world offers, and in the end, you become empty. And so if God is not filling your heart, you'll come up empty. And so it's critically important that you never stop cultivating your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, believers, are the temple of the living God, just as God said. And he quotes the prophet Jeremiah, the new covenant. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he goes on and he quotes Ezekiel and Isaiah. Therefore, God says, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God, when he redeems us from sin, calls us to come out and to be separate from their midst. And the tendency of believers, even to this day, is one of two extremes. You either isolate yourself from lost people or you insulate yourself from lost people. And both are out of balance. Christ's enemies said, oh, he's a friend of the tax collectors. And so Christians, on the one hand, are not to be bound together with unbelievers. We're not to be like them because if we're bound with them, if you spend 99% of your time with pagans as your friend and 1% of your time with believers, I can tell you who's going to have the greatest influence in your life. And so we need the balance, the perfect balance that the Lord Jesus modeled, contact without contamination. So on the one hand, the writer of the Hebrews says he was innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. On the other hand, Luke will call him a friend of sinners. So Judah went to the wrong end of the spectrum. He was bound together with an unbeliever by the name of Hiram. So that's Judah's wayward behavior. Secondly, I want you to think for a moment about Judah's worldly bride, his worldly bride. So while kindling this relationship with this lost man, He steps out further from the will of God by marrying a lost woman. Look, if you will now, at verse two. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, the dad's name was Shua, and he took her, meaning he married her, as some translations render it, and went into her. Now, Judah, in many ways, is an Old Testament illustration of the prodigal son. He leaves his home, He leaves the covenant people. He goes to, quote unquote, a distant country. He goes into the heart of Canaanite paganism and uh, in this city called Adullam. And if you know the rest of uh, Genesis, it's a sad record of what happens to this man. But God, in his mercy, before he is done, is going to fix things. But he goes and he meets this Canaanite woman. To be a Canaanite was to be an idolater. It was to be involved in the worst, most heinous sins you can consider. It was, in essence, a raw pagan, a pagan of pagans. And she is called the daughter of a man by the name of Shua. Shua is a Hebrew word that means riches. And so Hebrew people usually just don't indiscriminately pull a name. They pull it with a purpose, especially in Old Testament times. And so obviously, Shua is from a rich family. And so his daddy named him Riches. And So he sees his family. They're wealthy. They're well off. He sees this woman. He took her, that and he married her, and he went into her. So the emphasis clearly is not on the spiritual, but on the physical, because that's what's driving her. He saw her. She's from a rich family. He marries her. Some translations say he sleeps with her. That's the nuance of he went into her. And it's a sad day from there on. Now, if only he had heeded the counsel that Abraham, his grandfather, had given to Isaac. If he had only heeded the counsel that Isaac uh, had given to uh, Jacob. His great-grandfather Abraham had given specific counsel to Isaac, and his grandfather Isaac had given specific counsel to Jacob as to how you get married. Listen to these words of Abraham in Genesis 24. He gets his servant, and he charges him. And we read, please place your hand under my thigh. It's a rather picturesque view. It's where children come from. And of course, this is important to a Jewish person because a circumcised man was someone who is committed to the covenant. And the place under the thigh is where life comes from. And they were to raise a godly heritage. You don't marry pagans. You marry believers. Place your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives who acknowledge the one true God of Israel and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Likewise, Isaac gives this instruction to Jacob. Listen to these words from Genesis 28. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Listen, if Judah had been walking with God, he never would have built a close relationship with an idolatrous Canaanite man such that he would marry a pagan Canaanite woman. But remember, here's a guy who was driven by fleshly things. He was the one who saw a in selling Joseph to the Midianites for money. And so he has a hardened conscience He leaves the place where his brothers are living, he adopts a pagan friend, he becomes a business associate. And then verse 2 says he sees a certain Canaanite woman, he marries her, and together they have three children. Look, if you will now, verse 3 of our chapter. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him heir. Judah named him heir, which means, literally in Hebrew, the watcher. And indeed, this little boy grew up in a home where he had a lot to watch he watched his father and mother and everything that they did. And obviously, Ur saw his Canaanite mother who was indifferent to the invisible God that Jacob worshipped, a woman who was involved in idolatry and licentiousness, and he ended up being influenced by her. Verse 4, then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. If you're using the ESV and some other translations, it says, she conceived again and bore a son, and she, they had the word she named him Onan, because in the Hebrew text, the pronoun is shared. So in this case, unlike with Ur, where Judah names him, the mother names him Onan. Now the name Onan means strength. And of course, um, traditionally to this day, Jewish fathers name their sons. I was talking to my friend not long ago who lives in Jerusalem and he was flying to Chicago because his grandson was soon to be born. And as a rabbi, he was going to circumcise him on the eighth day. And it is of course on the eighth day that the father to this day, at least amongst observant Jews, will name the son. But in this case, the dad Judah is not naming the son, the mother is because this man is usurping his responsibility to his pagan wife. And as we'll see in a moment, the name, strength, Onan, fits the boy because he has strength not to do what's good, but to do what is evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse five, she bore still another son and named, or again, she named, it's shared again in the Hebrew text, and she named him Shelah. Meaning, he that breaks. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. So Judah's unnamed Canaanite wife, all we know is that she's the daughter of this Canaanite man. Um, She names him Shelah. And again, it's an indication that he is furthering, surrendering his headship and leadership in the family. Now listen then, wherever you are in the world, you are called to lead your family you're a dad, the family shepherd. That doesn't make you better than your wife. You desperately need your wife, she's your helpmate. But you can't have two heads. To have two heads is to be a monster. And if, you usur- if your wife usurps your leadership by your abdicating your responsibility, you have created disaster in your home and typically you will feminize your children. I was speaking to a man this week. He said, well, you know, I don't know if my wife wants to join Community Bible Church. I said, well, what's your thought? Well, oh, I love the church. I feel like it's a place where we can really grow. But my wife's not so sure she likes the church. I said, lead, man, lead. Be a man. Get with it. Get on the program. Tell your wife I'm going to go and I'm going to join, and I need you to support me in this decision. But he is abdicating his leadership.
1: To listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Reaping Moral Compromise. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week Monday as we continue to Search the Scriptures.